Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, hello. Oh, can you hear me? Hello. Welcome. Glad to have you guys here. You braved the snow apocalypse that we had. Great job. Oh, wait. No, there was none. Um, but we're glad that you're here. And uh, we're going to be diving back into Leviticus and uh, looking forward to getting into the book tonight. So we're going to be looking at uh, Leviticus 1 through 7, which covers the five main offerings that, that are given. And the way that we're going to do this is essentially to kind of start at a 30,000-foot level and talk about some of the concepts that an offering would involve, and then start to go and actually look at each individual one. Uh, we're not going to go necessarily text by text uh, with, with some of these. One, because it repeats itself a lot. Um, two, because we want you guys to come back next week. And three, because uh, we really don't have to to get the exact point of what, of what God is teaching us. So before we do that, I do want to give just a quick recap of what we talked about last week. And then um, we got a couple questions that we'll answer, and then we will uh, move forward into Leviticus. Sound good? All right, before we do that, I do want to pray, though. So let me pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your love and kindness, and we do pray, Father, that uh, you would just help this book come alive for us, Father, that you would teach us new things, and Father, that you would help us just enjoy the time of fellowship that we have as a church together as we just come under the authority of your word and the blessing that it entails. And Father, we pray that it would just direct us more and more towards the gospel and so much of what you had planned and revealed and fulfilled in King Jesus. And it's in that name that we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. All right. Um, so if you remember last week, the big thing that we talked about was that Leviticus is about the presence of God. And really the Torah in general, the first five books of the Bible, it's about the presence of God. How do we get back in? We talked about Eden, how it was uh, perhaps on a mountain. And really that's where God created his sacred space to dwell with humanity. Um, and, but ultimately that became thwarted by sin and death. And so it, humanity had to move outside of God's presence. And, but really over and over again, we see this kind of idea of people going on top of a mountaintop to get close to God, to speak to God, to offer sacrifices and offerings to him. And, and so what we find when we look at the first five books of, of the Old Testament is that there's a lot of covenants. And we talked about a covenant. If you remember, a covenant is the bond by which promises are made, conditions are understood. And, uh, and what was the last thing? Promises are made, conditions are understood, and oh shoot, I forgot. This is like your working covenant this is thing, my right? Like you've been working on this for a decade. Promises are made, conditions. Oh, relationship is Amen. secured. I got it. He okay. forgot last week too, didn't he? <laughs> Don't it was just for me. dramatic effect. So yeah, I was just seeing if you guys knew it, but nobody said anything. So I'll test you again next week. Anyways, so uh, that's what a covenant is. That's what God does. He he makes these, he he establishes these relationships with people in different ways. But then he comes alongside those relationships and he makes these promises, these conditions, and he secures it. So people know like this is not going to change. The promises I've made, the, the conditions that belong to this, that they're going to protect our relationship going forward. And so we talked about those major covenants, right? We talked about Noah and we talked about Abraham. We talked about uh, Moses and David and really how the Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is really concerned with how God starts to invite the people of Israel in the Mosaic covenant to come enjoy his presence. And really it's a, it's a continuation in, of sorts of the Abrahamic covenant because when God saved the people of Israel, it was in such a way that he was actually fulfilling his covenant promise to Abraham. I'm gonna make you a great people. 
want a nation that's expanding. And so he creates this covenant and he calls this people to be holy. And then he gives them the ways in which that actually takes place. And he, and he allows them to understand these concepts of, of holiness being set apart and purity, being clean to enjoy that, that, set apartness with God. And so a couple of the questions that we got are actually in light of some of these things. Okay. So the first question was, what is a concise definition of purity? And really it's kind of hard to make this a concise definition to be completely honest with you. And I think actually some of what we're going to unpack today will continue to uh, hopefully bring light on that. But what I just said is clean for access, because there's a lot of ways you could define purity, I think. But in terms of how scripture is using that idea, that's really what it's about. You are clean for access. You are clean enough that God, in our toothbrush analogy, you are clean enough that God would like to use you, right? And if you lose that purity, God is not going to discard you, but he's going to, you know, take some time. You need some time to be, to be cleansed. Now, if you get too mucky and in the nasty toilet, like we talked about, then maybe God will probably never let you be used again, right? That's the, that's the idea of this, this cycle, which we're going to talk about more so. And the second question is related to this. It says, if holiness means to set apart, how does that relate to God? So one of the, the key parts of, the, of holiness is that when God sets you apart for himself, that idea of dividing, setting you apart, because he's setting you apart for himself, that's why holiness is often associated with those ethical and virtuous ideas. So I'm not saying that virtue or ethics are not necessarily associated with this idea of holiness, um, but it's not like holiness as a whole, as a word. It's specifically when God sets you apart as holy as his, that he, that part of that, what he expects of that holiness is that it produces in you something a lot like himself. And so, yeah. Well, and if I, I, I like it's a tricky thing to explain. I think you're doing a good job. And you're making me think about some different analogies where um, you are in the sinky chair. No, <laughs> I am getting smaller. So, um, even if you think about dirt and how nobody thinks dirt is immoral, but it belongs in certain places and not others. You know what I mean? Like if you came over and you saw me sweeping, you know, my, my, my living room or something, I'm sweeping the dirt in my living room. Well, wouldn't, it wouldn't be weird right? If you saw me sweeping the dirt off my sidewalk, that also wouldn't be weird. But if you came over and I was like sweeping, trying to sweep the dirt off my actual yard, it'd just be like, what are you doing? Like, why are you trying to do that? Dirt is fine in the yard. It's even acceptable on the sidewalk, but you don't want dirt in your house. Or maybe a better thing would be, how many of you guys take off the shoes, take off your shoes when you go inside somebody else's house or your house or whatever? It's not like your shoes are immoral, it's just that they have things on them that don't belong inside. And so part of, I think, what the purity thing is, is God saying, being in my presence is not like not being in my presence. And there's certain things that are expected here. There's certain things that fit here and certain things don't. And I think that helps hopefully make sense yeah, of some absolutely. of what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. That's good. Um, this question is for Mark, I believe. So this question is, can a Chicago Cubs fan um, go to heaven? If Scott Rowland can go to the Hall of Fame, yes. <laughs> Amen. If you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> the, way, the way is open to all, everybody. Uh, okay, so this one is for, I'm going to give to Michael. This is, how do Jews interact with the sacrificial system today? I appreciate you giving this to me because this is from my mom. So thanks, mama. <laughs> Great question. Yeah, so she's, um, my mom and sister tap in on this thing, usually virtually. And, and she texted me the other day and asked me this question. So 
like, do Jews still offer sacrifices? Because, she, you know, she's like, she like, we grew up in an area where there were plenty of Jews around. She's like, I don't ever remember seeing them walking animals through the streets. She didn't really say that. But like, you know, how does that work? And, and the answer is no, that they don't still offer sacrifices because they can't still offer sacrifices. Because if you remember, there's a specific place where you're allowed to offer the sacrifices. And in the Leviticus context, while the people of God are still um, kind of moving it, that, you know, that they're, they've, uh, they've moved in and they're establishing themselves along the way or since they moved out of Egypt, they're, they're kind of moving through the wilderness into the promised land. Eventually, they'll build the temple. For now, they have the tabernacle. Anyway, it, there's like one, you have to offer the sacrifices at this specified location. And once you have the temple, that's where you offer the sacrifices. They don't have access to the top of the temple. I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, but I'm sure you've seen a picture of the Temple Mount. Uh, it's called the Dome of the Rock. There's this gold dome right up on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it, it belongs to the Muslims. Like the Jews don't get to go up there. And you ever heard of the Wailing Wall? How many of you have heard of the Wailing Wall? It's the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. And many Jews, particularly Orthodox Jews, will spend a great amount of time there reading the Torah and praying and weeping because this is as close as we can get to the place where we want to be with God's, in God's presence. So they're not allowed to offer sacrifices now because they don't have access to the place where they're supposed to offer sacrifices. And so then you might think, well, are they constantly in trouble then because they're not offering sacrifices? No, they believe that God is gracious with them and understands the situation that they're in, and they pray for God to give them back access to the top of the temple, but most of them would regard study of Torah and the living of a good life as a sort of stand-in for the offerings and sacrifices. So God counts these prayers and these, this study and this, these acts of obedience as an offering because they can't offer the offering. But yeah, that, that's part of why, certainly Orthodox Jews, they want the temple back. So just a piece of Bible history, you know the term Samaritan, right, in your New Testament, how the Jews and the Samaritans were fighting in Jesus' day and continued. One of the criticisms the Orthodox Jews would have had against the Samaritans is they offered sacrifices on their own mountain. Yeah. This is a big, big deal to them. So it's easy for us to say now, well, I don't know any Jews who are doing what they, they, they can't. Mm -hmm. So you're holding them to a standard that's physically impossible because they weren't allowed to offer sacrifices just anywhere. The holy place was the place that God prescribed and so now you might understand why there's this tension that's more than racial with the Samaritans and the Jews. And, you know, did you ever, have you been up to the top? I've never been up to the top. So Mark, Mark and I got to go to Jerusalem together and we went to the Wailing Wall. It's a moving thing. And I remember writing on a little piece of paper, you can write prayers and put them in the wall. Usually the Jews do this and hopefully I wasn't like offending anybody in doing this. But I remember I wrote like, like, God, like, help them to look up higher. Like, look above that mount to the Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And it just, you want so badly for there to be a recognition that, like, there's so much pathos and so much, like, faith and desire to worship God. Um, but it's so located, yeah, it's so connected to that location. It's, it's a really wild experience. Her question was, why do the Muslims have control of that? And that's a long history of, of basically back and forth. If, if you remember the Crusades, um, that was a part of even what the Crusades were fighting about was who was going to have final control of that land. And um, the Christians were trying to get it for, for a long time even, uh, but ultimately they lost to the Ottoman Empire. And the, they, they're the ones who held on to it um, for a very, I mean, they still, ha they still hold it. Um, <clears throat> and it was only after World War II that, um, you know, after everything that the Holocaust happened, everything happened to the Jews that basically uh, 
the Jews were given back that land um, that has, be, has created all the chaos and, and friction wars between Palestine, who, who originally had it um, after Israel had been taken out, um, and then between Israel, who now like, have been given like a portion of it. So when you look at the boundary markers, that's why they're kind of funky, because basically, I think it was around the, when was it, the 47, I think, where... 48. Yeah. 48 that like they were given that land back and um so that's why there's so much infighting within within that and what was it what's interesting is when we went to israel to look at um even some of the places there a lot of it is shared between different religions it's wild uh, it's yeah. a really really interesting place but i would encourage everybody to go one of the best trips i have ever been on um and just very moving yeah, and we're hoping whole. to make a trip back as a church if you have any interest in that in a well Soon. We had it planned in 2020. We, we did. Yeah. Stupid well, disease. Uh, but one of the things that Michael and I got to go two years in a row, we went with another group and then we led a group from the church. And both years we went, we were ready to go up to the Temple Mount to see it. But and this is not an exaggeration. It was closed by military edict because the week before we got there, the first year a Jew went up there and prayed in public and he got beaten up. And so they shut it down. It takes nothing to trigger in that world. And the reason I point that out is to tell you, it's not a big deal to us in America, that piece of land. When you walk over there, you know how sacred that is to the entire culture when you walk there. There is nothing more important to them than that piece of property on top where, you know, Abraham offered Isaac, David bought the threshing floor, the wine press, and then all of a sudden the temple's built there. That has such an epic status to the Jews today. So we're not correcting you, but you'll often hear people be flippant with, well, the Jews aren't even following their own rules. Boy, they'd love to. They can't. And I talked a lot last week, so I'm going to let Michael set up where we're going as we enter into this book of Leviticus. So you want to just kind of cast some vision for where we're headed? I would love to, yeah. And in, in, in a way, um, the best way to set ourselves up to understand what's going on in these early portions of Leviticus is to actually look on either side of Leviticus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and make sure they're open. And I'm guessing you're right around Leviticus 1, which is great. I'm going to catch up to you, and um, we'll be right there together. And then what I want you actually to do is to, to, to flip back a page or to look back a page, and I'd like to talk about the end of the book of Exodus. So the book of Exodus is the story of God delivering his people from bondage, from slavery in Egypt. So uh, by the time you get to the end of Genesis, the people of God have made their way to Egypt because of a famine. And by the time you get to the book of Exodus, they've been there for 400 years and they have been suffering as slaves. And so the whole book's about God delivering them so that they can be a free people. So he delivers them in kind of the first third of the book. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments and he tells them a lot about how they want, to want them to live. And the whole point of calling a people to himself is that they would be, as you said, a people for his presence. God wants to dwell with these people. And so the latter half of the book is God giving Moses instructions for the tabernacle. I know this isn't class, but everybody say tabernacle. <laughs> Thank you. So God gives instructions for the tabernacle, which you have a, do you have a, is that the temple mount or you have a picture of the tabernacle? So he's got a picture of the tabernacle. And this was sort of this like moving tent that they were supposed to create. And we'll talk about this as we proceed because it's fairly central to what's going on in Leviticus. So they have all, I mean like, five or six chapters of instructions about here's exactly, I mean, it is detailed, like down to what, the, how many rings they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be covered with and the type of wood that you're allowed to carry these stuff with and very, very detailed. And then
then you've got this, um, this sort of, uh, this moment where Israel's really unfaithful for a couple chapters. And then the latter half literally goes back through all those details again, describing the process of Israel obediently building the tabernacle as God intended. And then you come to the very end. So at the end of Leviticus, or excuse me, the end of Exodus, I'm gonna pick it up, uh, just reading a few verses uh, at the end of chapter 40. Let me go ahead and start in 28. Um, just kind of random, but there's a lot of things like this. So we're, we're gonna pick it up midstream toward the very end of this process. Verse 28 says, then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered it offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. So they're doing all this as the Lord commanded them. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. This is like an awesome moment. And if you've ever done a, like reading the Bible through a year type of thing, you're really excited when you get to this moment because it's like they finished the work of building it and I finished the work of reading about it, okay? Like it took a while, here we are. I, I honestly did, I'd not, I'd forgotten that this was in the Bible until real recently. Look at the next verses, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Everybody say awesome because this is literally what Israel wants more than anything else in the world for God to dwell with them. But look at the next line. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What, like the whole point of this was to dwell with God and be in his presence. And we built this thing and God's here, but we can't go in because God is here. We're barred from his presence. Now, if you would flip through Leviticus all the way over to the very beginning of the book of Numbers. I just want you to notice the very first line. We don't even care about the details. We just want the very first line of the book of Numbers. Those of you who are reading along, let me give you a second. The rest of you can just listen. Here's how Numbers begins. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. What? Like, okay, so when we're at the end of Exodus, like Moses can't go in there. We're barred from God's presence. Not even Moses gets to go in. By the time you get to the book of Numbers, now it's just sort of a matter of course. It's like not even weird. Moses goes in there and talks to the Lord. How did we get there? The answer is Leviticus. We've been created for God's presence. It's not that hard to see the connections. We've been made for God's presence. God created the world as a temple so that he might dwell with us. We've been barred from his presence because of our sin and rebellion, and we cannot come in. We are disqualified, and yet then we can. How? The answer, Leviticus, and specifically the sacrifices. So hopefully that's a decent setup because the first seven chapters really are all about, okay, how is it really possible for an impure people, an ungodly people, to become fit for God's presence. And I, what I love too is if you're, if you're reading the end of Exodus um, and you get to that and you see like he can't come in, but then as soon as you turn the page and you get to Leviticus 1, Crawl. the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, the story is continuing. Leviticus is not just a manual, it is a part of the narrative. And that is a, an important part of the we, you shouldn't miss that. Again, this is all climaxing in Leviticus. Leviticus is what we're point like what those books are pointing to because this is how we enjoy God. This is how we get into His presence. And so, um, part of what it says is going to start to unload some of those offerings. And so, what we want to do is just kind of talk about what are offerings. What what is an offering? What are the what are they for? Why why are these part of what God is asking for? And so, uh, Mark, you want to you want to pick up on that? 
Yeah, I'm going to just give you, a, I think, a, a, a walking definition of an offering. It is a willful choice. Start with that. When we think of offerings under what God asks of us and expects of us, I think the first thing that it has to be willful. Um, I, I don't want to take them out of context, but several times in the Bible, it says God doesn't need our sacrifices. It's, it's not the sacrifices we ask for, or the, the, it's not the sacrifices that makes God excited. It's the willingness to offer him it. So it's a gift. And that gift is given to him. Some of them, we were talking about it uh, just a few moments ago. Some of them, God says, I want you to, to bring me this. And there's other times you can bring God an offering. Now, what I want to take it away from is what we call offering in the church. Uh, not suggesting, I'll just say what I need to say. Some people sacrifice when it comes to offering and some people throw God a bone. And we're grateful for every bit of it. God can put it all to work. But the thought of just giving God a little something for himself misunderstands the relationship we have with God. God is asking for us to sacrifice for him because we love him, because he's inviting us into his presence. It's not something we're obligated to do. It's something we get to do. So I would start with the whole concept of it being willful. And then it's, it's a gift. Uh, Elijah's got some notes here that from what he's been taught, I think is interesting. An offering can be a gift. It can be communion with God, or it could be consecration. It's, there's many things it does. Now, Michael, you were sharing an illustration you learned from your professor. I think it would fit here. Yeah, so a couple of, you know, all, I've heard a couple of people explain this in ways that were helpful. One of my friends who teaches Old Testament at, at Ozark talks about how these offerings, these sacrifices are, it's sort of a weird analogy, but it's sort of like God invited you over to his house for a meal to eat at his table, but he's told you what food to bring. So I thought that was kind of helpful and cool because it connotes like I'm going to his house to dwell with him. But the really helpful one, back in seminary, my, one of my Old Testament professors, um, we were like, well, what, are, well like, what is the point of the offering? Like, why give offerings? What do they mean? And I remember he asked the question, he said, well, why would a husband give flowers to his wife? And we were like, well, I'm gonna like lots of reasons. Well, what are they? Like, I'm, maybe because he sang, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I screwed up. I'm really sorry. I just wanna like show you that I mean it. I, I really didn't mean to do what I did. Maybe he's saying, just because I love you. Maybe he's like expressing gratitude because she's been, you know, taking care of him in some unique way for a season. Maybe it's like the celebration of an anniversary or a special day of some kind. And so we were talking about all these different reasons why a husband might give flowers to his wife. And he was saying, the offerings are kind of like that. If you try to fit them all into one mold, you'll miss them. But if you understand them to be like this willful choice of expressing something in the context of a loving relationship, then you'll have the proper way, the proper framework to make sense of them. It comes in context of appreciating, appreciating the opportunity God is giving us. If offerings are seen other ways, I think they become skewed. So God is inviting Moses from the tent and he's saying, I'm going to prepare. And as Michael was elaborating, we've all been highly biased and 100% convicted by a book we've all read in Leviticus. And it speaks the song, which is, if you'll notice at the end of Exodus, as Michael said, the tent is done. It's ready to be moved into, but it's not until Leviticus chapter nine that the people get to enter it. The priest never enters this holy place until the ninth chapter of Leviticus, what stands in between? Here's what God is asking you to bring as a, as a gift of gratitude for the opportunity he's given you to be cleansed, to be present, to receive, to acknowledge. We could go on and on if that makes sense. So just nod your head up and down if you're either tired of me talking about it or you get it, All right? But the offerings are not something we throw God a bone. 
because he doesn't need any of them. It's what we need. The offerings tell us our condition. It tells us the opportunity in front of us. And we're going to walk through those in a little bit. And they become a little bit, not complicated, but they're weird, weird for details. our culture. Yeah. yeah, a lot of details. I think it's helpful to know too, <clears throat> you know, I have this up here, the, they tell us something, they invite us to something, they help us become something because ultimately that is what their purpose is. Sometimes we, especially when we're reading Leviticus, we're, we're reading it so literally, you know, which is not to say like they weren't, they were literally called to do all those things, but they also were called to do them because of what they meant. They, they held value. They held purpose and meaning. And I think of, which this may not connect with everybody, but there's a scene in the office where there's a Christmas party, right? And they are giving each other gifts. And, and Jim is in love with Pam and he got her this teapot. And in this teapot, there's all sorts of things he's put in there. There's a, like a picture of himself from high school. There's a little note that he has basically, I think, confessing his love. We don't actually know. But, and then they, he has some other things in there, uh, like a hot sauce packet from Taco Bell. And anyone else opening this thing, they would be like, I, what is this? What is going on? But to Pam, it's their story. It's, it's what she's receiving so much more than just a, a, a hot sauce packet from Taco Bell and a picture of Jim in his yearbook. These are moments that are pregnant with meaning. And that is what every single offering possesses as well. Now, through our eyes, we're not always going to see it because we're just not in their world. But that is what we hope to do tonight is to get you there. And so what we want to talk about next is simply this. Why death? Why death? Why is there so much death involved in this process? And the biggest part is kind of what we talked about. Can I pop into? Yes. I don't know, and I... Full confession, I'm, I'm going to listen to last week's, but I haven't listened to it yet. So I don't know what expectations have, we have for you guys in terms of whether you're reading. So we probably, I'm guessing, encourage you to read Leviticus 1 through 7 before you came tonight. How many of you did that? Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. I was just curious as to being on the same page. So you guys get why he's talking about, like, you just killed a lot of beasts. Like, what's going on with that? All right, just yeah. making sure. No, that's good. I'm just catching up to all y'all. Well, basically. and right, when we, when I think of, Leviticus is kind of what we think about, like this gross, nasty book that tells me a whole lot of things that mean nothing to me, right? And so uh, part of what we want to answer is like, why is this happening? Um, and again, kind of going back to what we talked about last week even, is what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Death entered the world. And that's why they had to get out of God's presence. God is life. He is life. He is our purpose, our destination. He is everything we are called to, to enjoy forever. And we can no longer be with him because sin and death have invaded a space that he has created for life to thrive in. And so that's why in some ways it's kind of odd that God would require so much death. But I think in some ways it's because, you know, we've said this before, from a 30,000 foot view, Leviticus is saying, take your sin seriously. Every single time, every time, they would kill an animal. That metallic smell, the sight, the sounds, every part of it was a reminder to the people of God that sin and death are a destructive force. They are, are something that distort everything that is good and holy. And because of that, they, like, they can't come close to God. They can't get, like we can't allow death to, to get too close to him. And so part of the question is like, okay, so why are we killing these things? And this is kind of the, the I guess, the two-sided coin of, of what these offerings become. The first aspect of this is because death is the result of sin and uncleanness, that when you're killing something, it's actually becoming a substitute for yourself. That was supposed to be you. 
you were supposed to be the one who couldn't come near God because of the sin and death that exist both in the world and in your own heart. And so this is a way to remind you that the very, the chasm that exists between you and God is very real. And yet God has created this way for you to come a little bit closer. The other part of this is because of the way in which it actually cleanses uh, the, the, the blood, and cleanses and, and basically becomes a ransom for you. And this is the other part that becomes so fundamental to this two-sided coin, this blood aspect, which I think when we think about blood, we really do think about death. But that's, in their context, they were thinking about it and it's purifying as a purifying agent. It's life. So, Michael, do you want to talk a little bit about, sure. about that? Yeah, I think, again, you're, you're setting it up well. And it's, a, it's, we were talking about this back there. It, it probably isn't as complex as it feels if we grew up in a culture where all of this made perfect sense. But to us, when we read it, it, you know, there's so much talk about blood and in so many different ways. And so we wonder about how precisely to make sense of it. And I think we have to start exactly where you started with um, bl- blood symbolizes life and death or death and life. And sometimes the emphasis is on death, um, where like, you know, death is the consequence of sin. This animal has to die uh, because there has to be some sort of a penalty for sin. So there's a penalty component to it uh, in order to, in order to, to, to sort of right the, the wrongs in God's moral universe. And blood comes in because it's a really poignant symbol of death, because I mean, everybody knows how it works. If you, if you slit the throat of an animal and all the blood drains out, that animal's not still alive. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to grow up on a farm to understand that. There's a reason why when we start bleeding, we're not just like, oh, well, that's really interesting. Let's see if I can get some more to come out. No, like you stop that process because your blood staying in you is what keeps you alive and your blood exiting you is what actually could bring about your death. And so in certain senses, it symbolizes the death in the sense of consequence for sin. But there's also this sense of um, you take the blood and you like sprinkle it on stuff. Well, that's really weird. Like what's going on there? And the idea there is that this animal gave its life by dying and this blood now also comes to symbolize the life and you sprinkle it on stuff as a, as a representation of what's happening, that the giving of this animal for you as a substitute for you both takes care of like the, the consequence problem and also makes you clean because it is a symbol of life that can draw you close to God. I hope this is making sense. Why don't you throw up that little chart real yeah. quick? I want to mention this chart and then we'll m- mention one more verse. So um, this is something that we'll probably talk about as we proceed Um, And we'll probably throw this up there a few times because for us, it just feels like there's two categories. There's good and there's bad, right? And so like good is is like holy and clean. Bad is unclean and, and polluted or impure. But it's not that simple in the ancient world. It really isn't. So um, everything is kind of naturally in a state of cleanness. So cleanness is the natural state of a thing. It's not like... um, holy, but neither is it polluted. So you're sort of right in the middle. Now, if you become polluted, then you have a problem. And you can be polluted by any number of things that we'll talk about as we break it down. Um, uh, you could be polluted by sin is the easiest, most obvious thing. But there's also, like, you could be polluted by certain bodily fluids leaving your life. That's weird. And we'll, again, explain it when we get there. But so you're clean. You can become unclean or polluted. And then you have to do certain things to become clean again. But just because you're clean doesn't mean you're holy. So you're not bad, but you're not yet fit for God's presence because it takes something special to be in God's presence. 
It takes something extra to be in God's presence. And so in order to be fit for God's presence, you have to move from clean to holy. And the reason why blood is a relevant, I want to say metaphor, but more than just a metaphor, is because it represents the downward and the upward movement. To move further and further away from God is to experience more and more death. To move further and further up toward God is to experience more and more life. And so blood, in a sense, becomes a symbol of our natural progression away from God because of our sin and our supernatural um, ascension back into God's presence uh, because of the blood that's offered for us. I hope I haven't lost you yet. Let me mention one other thing, and then I'll stop talking. A little bit later on in Leviticus, there's this strange section that talks about how you can't eat the blood and you can't spill the blood of certain animals in certain ways. And it's like, well, why? What does this even have anything to do with a sacrifice? Like, why is it that we have to be so careful about blood even when we're not dealing with the situation of sacrifice. I'm thinking specifically about um, Exodus, excuse me, Leviticus 17, verses 10 and following. He says, I'm gonna set my face against any Israelite or foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I'm gonna cut them off from my people. Whoa, that's really big. Why? He gives us the why. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. So it's almost like the point is God saying, I decided that blood would be the thing that would bring about atonement. And therefore, we're going to treat blood with a certain amount of respect. Now, as with many things in Leviticus, this might not make sense in and of itself. Now, I don't want to get ahead of us. But if you remember that ultimately this is all pointing forward to Jesus, then all of a sudden it starts to make sense right? That the most valuable thing that has ever happened is that Jesus shed his blood for you. So there's a little bit of a, like a wax on, wax off type of deal here, right? Like wax on, you, you, how many of you have seen Karate Kid? All of you except for the, yeah, uh, Mr. Porter, I talked to your dad, something's wrong. I don't know what's going on. Like I used to think they were good parents, but clearly something's wrong here. But you, you know what I'm talking about when I say wax on, wax off. He's like, why am I even doing this? Like this isn't even helpful. And then Mr. Miyagi's like, wax on, wax, what? And so it's like a placeholder, for something that will be learned in the future. So I did not intend to talk that long. I apologize. No, Is that clear enough to make I think, sense? I think so. And I think I want to add one more thing to hopefully bring it all together. So if you think about a person too in, in the ancient world who is looking at blood and they're like, you know what? I've noticed that when that thing doesn't have blood, it dies. It did. Yeah. Um, I think part of the, the, the thought process was, so blood must be something that gives life. Mm-hmm. Blood must be something that is like what somebody needs to exist in this world. And so therefore, if I put it on me or if I put it on things, I'm actually putting life on these different things, if that makes sense. Um, the other part too is for the clean and unclean thing, this might be a helpful way to, to think about it. If you're a, a bowl, for instance, we'll get into the offerings, but a bowl. A bowl or a bowl? A, a cow, we'll say a cow. That'll make it more clear. A cow. <laughs> if you have a cow, right, it's, that's a clean animal for, yeah. for an Israelite. That's a clean animal. Um, now, what makes it holy is when you set it apart to actually be a part of the sacrificial system. Mm. Now, an unclean animal would be a pig. That will never be holy. That will never be something that can come into that realm. Does that make sense? Do you see how those distinctions are starting to play out with that graphic? It's, it's, a, it's a level by which um, the, the cow can become unclean because it's touched a dead body, uh, but it can be made clean again because it's just a clean animal. Like that's something that God has said, this, is, this can be a clean animal, but it becomes holy when it's, when it's given to God. And 
that's the that's what God is also trying to demonstrate for every single person who's bringing something to the to the offering. And the blood in of, of itself is what is part of what makes that not just clean enough to to be in the presence of God, but set apart so that it can enter into that presence. And so if you think about somebody who's um, walking toward the sun, which the sun will destroy you, right? If you get close to it. Um, and part of that is because we are just finite things, right? What? But the whole idea is like, well, what if we put something around us that would allow us to get so close to the sun that we could enjoy parts of it that nobody even knew about, the wonder of it all? And that is kind of what he's talking about here is he has set a people aside and he said, you're going to be clean. And there are ways you can become unclean. But if you're, but when you are clean, when you've followed all those rules to be clean, you can actually purify, put something around you enough to go into the holy place and enjoy something so wonderful that nobody ever realized. And that is going to be something worth every part of what your life is for. And that's part of how God is kind of bringing all these things together. So did you want to say something? Yeah, let me <clears throat> frame this on a different angle. Um, and not that you guys said this, but I know in conversations with people, and I even know in my own journey, I struggled with this. You might think, well, God can't be in the presence of death and God can't be in this, like it's going to give him cooties, right? Like, God, you just can't do this to God. No, 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 listen, God won't be in the presence of death. It wasn't a part of his creation. Elijah's 100% right. He's life. He will not permit it. His holiness will not permit it. We don't offer a sacrifice so that we can break down God's walls. No, we need this. Without the blood of the sacrifice, we have no ability in and of ourselves. So God has given us this venue. And to kill an animal, I don't think we can in America understand, well, you farmers can, that if you just gave away your best stud bull, B-U-L-L, if you gave that away, you're never getting it back. It's never going to breed. You're never going to take the best of it. You're giving that away because it means so much to you to be in the presence of God that you would sacrifice something of so, such value to you. But often it's heard, well, I can't, I got to get rid of my sin because God just refuses. He can't like it's his kryptonite. No, God's got no kryptonite. I thought I'd use a 60s reference since he used an 80s reference right. and he used a 90s reference. So you can tell our ages, right? And, uh, Mark, Smile, I, so people. That was funny. <laughs> that was funny. Something just clicked for me that um, in what you said that I'm not sure I've, I've, has ever clicked quite this way before. Um, so we sometimes hear that God can't be in the presence of sin. It's not, I'm going to flip and add another analogy. It's like saying fire can't be in the presence of unprotected flesh. That just doesn't make any sense. It's more that like unprotected flesh will be burned if it's in the presence of fire. So God is so righteous and holy and perfect and good that uncleanness can't, cannot survive his beauty and perfection. And yet, in spite of the fact that he is too good for us in our rebellion, and we don't deserve him the moment we rebel against him. He, in an act of love, finds a way to, to keep his holiness and bring us into his presence. If we get it reversed, it's like you could almost see that the sacrificial system was a thing that just made God not be ticked. Mm -hmm. And it is so much deeper than that. It is so much more beautiful and loving that God who would say, no, you rebelled against me. You now need to live in that. He didn't. He said, I'm going to wrap you up so that you can come into my holiness and not be destroyed. That's why when Moses was on the mountain getting the law in, in Exodus on Mount Sinai, he said, can I see your glory? And God's like, oh, that's cute. Mm -hmm. You can't, but I'm going to show you something. Once again, the holiness of God does not keep him from loving us, but it keeps us from entering into him foolishly 
and willfully and all of the other follies that you want to come up with. Because that, I think that's the part where we have to, as Christians, in a world that if, uh, if a non-believer, someone who didn't understand the goodness of Jesus, and I'm done preaching in here in a second, if a person doesn't understand the goodness of the sacrifice of Jesus, they will think that we have this tyrant God who's just punishing us for being idiots. And we have to be the ones that go, no, no, no. He's inviting us back into a place we should never, ever be able to enter again because we said, no, thank you. And to me, it's all about the presence of God and the goodness of God providing us a means. So now we want to take all this and start to get into the book. Okay, start to get into the actual offerings themselves. Sound good? We've got 25 minutes. That's pretty good. All right. So, uh, so God calls to Moses from the tent of meeting. He says, I want you to talk to Israel and I want you to explain the offerings that I'm going to, that I desire of them for, to get them here. Again, this is not... God penalizing his people. This is like he's saying, I am the son. Get close to me. You will be burned. But here's a way you can get close to me without being burned. And here are some specific uh, reasons why you would want to. It's not just because you're trying to make me happy and so I don't hurt you. That's not what this is about. It's a level by which they are enjoying the presence of God for those same reasons, like the gift aspect, the gift, the, communi- the community, the fellowship, the, the consecration, the setting apart of like these special sacred things. It's the analogy of like why we're getting flowers, right? There's so many reasons why you'd want to get close to God, but these are the ways in which uh, God begins to basically expound upon those things. And so the first one is the burnt offering, the burnt offering. Um, and so it, what you'll notice too um, well, you won't notice it in terms of the English word, but the actual Hebrew word for that burnt offering is like an ascension. So it, and I'll, I'll just say this too up front. I'm telling these guys, it's funny because we are going to look into these offerings and expound upon them as best we can. The truth is uh, that so, so much of like the true pregnant meaning that we were talking about, the things that, that they would have understood that we don't, like we're looking at these things and seeing taco sauce and, you know, Jim's high school picture, we're trying to make sense of, okay, so why was that important to Pam? Well, that's kind of what we're doing. We're like, okay, so why was that important to God in Israel? And to be honest, there are, there's a level of this where we're just trying to use context to help us understand. And so there's some really good educated guesses, but at some level, we are like just separated from a long time of history. And so when we look into these things, you do need to know that, that this is what we understand, what Scott, really what scholars understand about what's happening in these different areas and how we can understand them from, from our point of view. And so the burnt offering was the first offering and it was the most important. You want to speak a little bit to that? About the burnt offering? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's called the, the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering. And the reason why it's called that is because one of the unique things about this one is that the whole thing is burnt up. And so you bring this, this bull, B-U-L-L, uh, this male without defect that has to be spotless, blameless, tamim is the word. It has to be without flaw. And you, you bring it before the, the, you know, the place and, and you put your hand on the head of, of this beast. And, and this is almost like a transfer. It's like, all that is true about me is being transferred to this animal. And, and, then, you, and then you slaughter the animal and you, and you splash the blood on uh, the various parts of the altar and then you offer it up as a sacrifice. And then the unique thing about this one is that, that it burns the whole thing. And it really is, you know, it's, it's, it's not a matter of like importance, but it's, it's first for a reason. It's kind of like the, the main one that really is just about taking us from a place of sinful and unclean acknowledging that, expressing my awareness of that, and going through and, and um, essentially doing the thing that God has told me I need to do to express my remorse and repentance and to receive the gift of him welcoming me, welcoming me anyway. 
So this animal that I've identified with and slaughtered, or that has been identified with and slaughtered, and the blood is splattered and is burnt up, is like the total removal of all that kept me from being with God. So it's a restoration, a reconciliation for me to be able to enter into life with him. And it also at the same time symbolizes like, but I'm also, I'm giving my whole self over. I'm not doing this in order to earn something. It's two things at once. It's I acknowledge that this bull is representative of God letting me back in, even though I don't deserve it. And I'm also at the same time saying, but I want to give my whole self to God. And so it really is about this restoration of the proper relationship between people and God and people. Just a quick comment. Not, it's not a correction. Morales brings up that point that when they would place the hand on it, it wasn't like passing a, when they sent the goat out into the wilderness that would carry the weight, they would actually lean, according to what he said the Hebrew word was, they would lean their whole body on the bull, expressing, I am placing all of my weight on you. It should be me, but it's you. Mm-hmm. And then that bull was taken and burnt completely, realizing that this is my lot in life if God doesn't provide an escape. One of the things that's really interesting about this offering in particular is that it is the most common one that you're going to hear about in Scripture. It, yeah. it's, it's all over the Psalms. It's the ones that they're going to offer and a lot of the stories throughout the Old Testament. And even at times, you'll hear about it in the New. Um, but this burnt offering was... Uh, was was one that they did every single day, two times a day. So the, the big thing is if you were going to offer a burnt offering, then depending upon what, where you were at financially, if you could do a bowl, that's what you did, right? If you could do a, a goat, that's what you did. If you could do a, a, a bird or a, a pigeon or a turtle dove, that's what you did, right? But the whole idea was that you, no matter where you were economically, that's, that's the goal is you could do this. It didn't matter where you were at. God was like, no, you're accepted by me. I don't care if it's a bull or a pigeon. I care that it's a, something that Expression. you are giving to me and it's costing you something. And it was like, this was a luxury, to give up a bull, B-U-L-L, was a luxurious thing. We're going to just keep that going, I think. So this was an important sacrifice that they were making as they gave this over. Now, a person could do this, but also this was something a priest did two times a day, every single day, in the morning and at night. And they would use a lamb. And they would do this every single day, two times a day. And they, all of it would be burnt away. Because it was, I, I've heard some commentators say that this actually, this constant, constant sacrifice that was happening, this constant aroma that was filling this place, covering the smell of death, covering the smell of, of, of really of what was being, God was, was looking past, right? In sin and death. It was covering these things and it was doing it constantly as a reminder that like sin is just a part of us in this world and it needs to constantly be covered. Something needs to constantly be being killed. Something needs to constantly be being burned up so that you can have access to God over and over and over and over and over and over again. Every single day. The amount of livestock, can you imagine? The amount of blood spilled, the amount of just time spent. This is what the burnt offering was calling them to, was to be reconciled to God, was keeping back uh, the, the wrath from, from God so that ultimately people could experience his, his goodness. And again, that blood, when they would go, they would splash the altar, they would pour out the blood, but they would burn that entire animal. Nothing would be left. This is the only sacrifice where the, all, of the, all of the meat was burnt. Every bit of it except for the skin.
Um, it's also one that was a pleasing aroma, it says. It was a food offering. So this was a food offering, it says, but who's eating it? Nobody's eating it. God is. This is like as if you are coming and you're bringing a meal to God and he's enjoying it. And then we get into the grain offering. Uh, who wants to tackle that? Let me take that one because I got an illustration for us. <laughs> and it, it's not a cool movie or TV show either. All right. So the grain tribute offering is to offer God a gift of thankfulness and gratitude. Now, I don't want to ruin this, but this is a memory from my childhood that I can't forget because I, I wasn't scarred by it. I was actually changed by it. Some of you might remember those sleeve of candies called Chuckles. Chuckles? Chuckles, okay. Um, they were like those fruit slices you can get at Walmart, you know, like a 12-pound bag for a dollar. They're awesome. They're red, green, yellow. And Well, these were these little things, and they look like little ribs. That's the only thing I can explain them. They were just these little pieces. Does anybody in their 50s or 60s. No, thank you, Doug. And so we remember these. Well, there was a green, there was a red, there was an orange, there was a purple, and there was a black one. The black one was black licorice. I would rather lick your shoe than eat black licorice. My dad would get me a pack of these chuckles because I loved them. We'd play this game. Could we keep them in our mouth and suck all the sugar off them before biting them? I wasn't good at doing that because I would just have to bite down on it. I love that candy. I still, to this day, would be 800 pounds if I could eat all the fruit slices I wanted. But my dad would say to me when we got in the truck, he'd buy them for me. And he'd say, Mark, can I have a chuckle? And guess which one I dug out? For about three years, I gave him the black one. I didn't know my dad didn't like black licorice either. I got it from him, but he would eat that one. Finally, one day to me, he said, what's your favorite color? And I said, yellow. And he said, can I have the yellow one? And I didn't want to give it to him. And I said, yeah, but that's my favorite. And he said, but that's my favorite too. And then my dad taught me in about a two-mile conversation that was very gentle and loving. He said, who bought you those? I said, you did? And he said, did I have to? No. He said, can I have the yellow one? Yeah. And I gave him the yellow one that day. He gave it right back to me and said, give me the green one. But I'll never forget that moment. When I think of a grain offering, when their harvest came in, it would be really easy to say, I've worked for all of this. This is my harvest. This is my hard work coming to fruition. And God says, I want you to bring me the best of your initial gathering. Why? Because I gave it to you. Because I love you because I won't leave you stranded. And now you're going to think I'm making this story up, but it's true. My dad were here right now. He'd just laugh and say, you never forget a thing. But the next time we went in, my dad said, what candy do you want? And I said, Chuckles. And he bought me that little sleeve and he looked at me and he said, can I have the green one? And he was my friend ever since, <laughs> right? What is the grain offering? It is a way to express faithfulness in your belief that God is good, because imagine, I don't know how many of you farm, but imagine to give the best knowing there may not be a harvest next year. Part of what God was doing was saying, do you appreciate what I have with you? And so it would have been a tribute. This is not, and we talked about this in the back, and I want to make this point and I'll be done. Some of these are because we've been bad. This one's not, you have to make up for your sin. This is one of those that God, God says, will you share your best with me? Do you appreciate how I share my best with you? Will you honor me the way I've honored you? And that's what a tribute or grain offering. And I think to a little bit, and this is not a fundraiser, please hear my heart. When we take up offerings as the body of Christ for the purposes of taking the gospel into the world, I think it has to be, this relates to what we do on Sunday. It's a tribute to God. It is saying, you can have, you can have a percentage of what I need because I trust you.
Um, one of the things too, um, which I don't have a slide for this for some reason. It didn't get in here. So um, this one is grain tribute in parentheses offering. Grain tribute offering. And the purpose is to offer a gift to God in order to express thanks and faithfulness. So I'll say that again. To offer a gift to God in order to express thanks and faithfulness. In order to express thanks and faithfulness. And what's interesting about this grain offering in particular was that it wasn't supposed to have leaven. And again, we're making best guesses, but they think it's because maybe that mutated it, maybe because it wasn't, because it was something that was, that was, that was living of sorts. Um, we're not exactly sure, but obviously that be, the unleavened bread became an important part of even what God commanded of them when they were leaving the Exodus. Um, and then also part of it was that it would always have to have salt as well. It always had to have salt. And part of that is they believe is because within the, the salt, uh, salt was always associated or at least very often associated with covenants, not just in scripture, but like in the ancient Near East. Salt was a part of what they would put on the meal in particular when a covenant was being made and a meal was being shared. And so um, that, that's part of what was always associated even with this meal because it was a reminder of the covenant, of the covenant that they, they had made. Um, so that's, that's something pretty interesting as they talk about this in, in Leviticus 2, um, that, that part of... And, also, they cooked them in different ways. And so there's different, different ways that they, they required it, depending on how they cooked it. If it was on a griddle, if it was in an oven. Um, so part of that, again, you, we don't need to get into those nitpicky details. The point is, though, is that this was something that the offerer could come and say, God, this is yours. And one of the special parts, too, is that the priest actually got to be a part of it as well. And so, again, it's a food offering. It's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And what... Um, as it was given over to God to eat, it was also given to the priest to eat as well. This is part of what the priest received because the priest didn't have land, right? If you remember, the Levites didn't get land like all the other tribes. They didn't have the same sorts of inheritance. This was their inheritance, the, the ability to serve the Lord and be in his presence. And so this is part of what um, they got to receive as a part of that as well. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible illustration, but I think it'll work. I'm just kidding. That was so what, good. mine? No, yeah. Okay. It's just so, it's seriously so good. Even that part about, you know, him giving you a back, a back a part of what he's, of what you gave to him. I mean, I know that's what you're thinking about is that you're giving this to God and God is saying, here, you guys can have a piece of it. Uh, it joking aside, the only thing I would add to what you said is that part of why salt was a symbol of these covenants is because salt never becomes something other than salt. Like you can't actually change the physical makeup of salt. And this is a common understanding in the ancient world. This is why when Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's like semi a joke because everybody knows salt actually can't not be salty. If it's not salty anymore, then you're not eating salt. You mix it with sand and it's not the same. I can't remember the name, sodium carbonate or whatever it is. But, I, but the, the, the relevance to the covenant is it's a symbol of the everlasting nature of the covenant. I am making a promise that I will not break under any circumstances. And so when we offer the grain offering with salt as Israelites, we're saying we, we are making any, uh, you know, an, undying, an, an undying commitment to you and we more so are celebrating that you have received this offering as the way in which we can enter your presence and you're not gonna change your mind. It's our way of celebrating the fact that you're faithful and if you say we get to come in, then we get to come in. So yeah, it's pretty rich. Uh, we got 10 minutes left and one of the most important parts we wanna do in this class each week is draw out how this connects to the whole storyline of scripture, how this points us to Jesus. And, you know, again, as Jesus is walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's explaining that, all, that it all points to him. So as we go through this, we're going to unpack that a little, each one a little bit pointing towards that. And so looking at the peace offering next, uh, the peace offering, 
uh, begins in chapter three. And really this peace offering would be one where this is the only meal, in fact, uh, the only offering where the offerer would share in the meal himself or herself. When they came to offer this, they would, um, basically it would be an animal and it would kind of go through the same sorts of drills that the, the burnt offering, the, the sin offering, the guilt offering would do in the ways that they would, they would kill it. But in the ways of what was burned and how it was burned, that's where it was a little bit different, right? The burnt offering, every part of the meat was burned, but not with a peace offering. With a peace offering, it was a, a little bit different. The best was given to God. So for instance, the fat covering the entrails, the fat was something that was just seen as the best part of the meat. And I've heard some different um, reasons why that, why the fat could also be a part of it, but I don't know. They're a little bit, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if, I, I feel just like want you to preach a sermon someday so. on the text, the fat belongs to the Lord. <laughs> I've written it three times. <laughs> what I say every day to myself. Um, so the fat would be burned and, and also the kidneys. Now, in what I've read about this even is that a lot of us believe the heart is the seat of emotions, right? When we think of the heart, we think of that's where the emotions come from, our feelings. Um, actually, for them, it was the kidneys. And so part of what they're giving is not just the best to God. They're giving their emotions to God, their, their desire, their passion, their, their zeal all to him as they, as they give him these things. Uh, and then the, the long lobe of the liver, which there's a lot of speculation as to what, the, we're not, they're not really sure, scholars aren't really sure why the liver, but I've actually heard um, a guy named Michael Heiser talks about how he thinks it was actually some sort of silent uh, polemic, some silent defense against the other ancient Near Eastern religions because they would use the liver to basically um, look into the stars type of thing. They would look into the future as for like divination and trying to see what comes next. Whereas the people of Israel, they're saying, God's in control. I'm giving, I'm giving it to God. I don't need to look into this to, to know what the future holds because I know who holds it and I'm giving it to him. So they offer those pieces to him. And then a little bit is kept back for the offer to be able to receive and enjoy this meal together. I love how you're like, we got 10 minutes. We can't I get know, into I it, can't. but then you can't help hey, yourself. that was only three minutes. I was, no, it's not bad. time. It's just those details are so rich. <laughs> yeah, the peace offering is unique because um, like these guys have said, it's not, it's not um, the same type of thing where God is, you know, you're in trouble if you don't do this and he's commanding you to do this. It really is, no, I'm, I'm not trying to affect any change or anything. I'm just celebrating that God has accepted me. So it could be confession of sin. I've done something wrong and I know you forgive me, but I just wanna do this to celebrate that. Or I wanna make a vow to God, or I just wanna say thanks. Um, sometimes called the free will offering. So yeah, I got nothing else to add. Yeah, it's, it was an optional sacrifice that people chose to do for different reasons. Again, the flowers, how, why am I doing this? Um, so it was a pretty beautiful thing. Now, one of the awesome parts about the peace offering, we were talking about this in the back, was that um, this one probably most associates itself with the Lord's Supper. As they sat at the dinner table and Jesus said, my life's going to be the sacrifice, take and eat that this was in some ways actually the peace offering itself being enjoyed and celebrated at that moment and the, what we continue to enjoy and celebrate because we don't participate in the sacrificial system. We don't think it's necessary because Christ came. Christ was the final sacrifice. We don't have to offer a burnt offering every single day, two times a day, because one final sacrifice was offered forever that covers us totally and completely that it has made us totally acceptable to God. It has dispelled his wrath away and it says, come to me. More than that, actually, he says, I'm gonna to come to you. Now you are going to be that, that sacred space. I'm living in you. And every time you take part of that, of that bread in the cup, every time you take part in that, you are enjoying a meal, not just with me, but you are enjoying part of the sacrifice and what it was itself, right? The other part that's interesting, and I've said this before, I know, I can't help myself, <laughs> is that the, 
is that it was a Passover meal. What would they kill at the Passover meal? The lamb. That was the blood they put on the doorpost. Why do we not eat lamb every Sunday? Because no more blood needs to be shed. Not a single drop would ever need to be spilt again to cover our lives and make them pure and clean and a dwelling place for the holy. It's not because these sacrifices didn't work. Remember back to Romans. It's because Jesus completed it fully. What God intended all along was us to, be, to see these and understand what they meant. Then Jesus came in and handled all of them. That's the beauty of, of this whole Jesus being the fulfillment of all of this. It wasn't because God failed. Jesus was plan B. I'm going to say that to the day I die. He didn't make a mistake and said, I got to start over. No, this has always been his intention. Um, I didn't put this up, so here's that if you need it. The sin offering was the next one. Um, and this one, um, it was specifically for unintentional sins and unintentional contact with things that were unclean. So if you accidentally did something um, that, that basically put you, made you unclean, uh, this was how you got clean again, basically. You want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I'll try to keep it super tight. So that word unintentional is a tricky one to um, translate. It literally means like, not with a high hand, which is a metaphorical way of talking about how sometimes you just do wrong because you want to do wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know it's wrong. You don't care. You just are going to, you know, tell God whatever, and you're going to do your thing. Um, And thankfully, God provides a way to take care of those sins. It's called the whole burnt offering. But this one is actually about sins. It's hard to talk about unintentional sins because it's like, did you ever really not mean to do what you did? Well, you kind of meant to do it or you wouldn't do it. But there, those sins that it's like, I didn't wake up this morning wanting to do this, but it just has a grip on me. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I fall back into the trap again. And after, I, I, why did I just like make myself sound better than I really am? Or why did I just, <clears throat> you know, lie about this thing or, or whatever it might be that has you caught up? Why did I just envy? Why did I just lust? Whatever. And this sin is to cover those sins where it's like, I really didn't want to do it, but I fell into the trap. And that's relevant. How many of you guys were with us last semester for Romans? So, do you remember in Romans 7, Paul is, is talking about life before Jesus, and he's saying, the good that I want to do, I don't do it, but the sin that I don't want to do, I keep on doing it. So he's talking about how, like, without Jesus, we really aren't free. We're, like, locked into this pattern that we can't break free from, and, and even as Christians, we sometimes feel this, and so even though this isn't about us, we kind of identify with it. So in the beginning of chapter 8, right after that, he says that, um, that uh, Christ was given as a sin offering. And it's this specific type of offering. So remember, in the book of Romans, Jesus has already been talked about as a propitiation, as a sacrifice of atonement in chapter three. I think that's really more the whole burnt offering part of things. But then what about like after I've accepted forgiveness and I still fall into the same trap? Like what then? And the answer is from Paul anyway, the sin offering. So this one covers those sins that you wish you wouldn't have committed, but still find yourself falling into it. That's no excuse to fall into it again. But it is a recognition that there's no sin you've committed that, Jesus, that God has not provided atonement for in and through Jesus. So I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but you did it with communion, so I figured it was okay. No, it was good. Yeah. Um, in terms of the guilt offering, uh, this one has more specifically to do with, with reparations. All right. So it's one thing to say, I need forgiveness. It's another thing to say, now I need to actually right. make things right with the, pe- with the people next to me. Right. Like I need to like, actually, it's, it's the story of Zacchaeus, right? When Jesus comes to him and he's like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pay everybody. I'm going to pay him even more than what I took from them. And particularly this one um, was again, like a, these are very nuanced because they still have to do with sin, right? At, at different levels. But one of the things that is even said, 
said with the guilt offering is that this one gets as close as it can be to dealing with intentional sin. Uh, really, what, and one of the things Michael Heiser says is none of the offerings actually deal with intentional sin. Um, but this one gets as close as it gets because, you don't think so? Really? Okay, why, tell me why. Well, I think the whole burnt offering does. Intentional sins? Yeah. In what way? I mean, it, now, it, so it's now, for this is sin. What happens Welcome to my world. <laughs> if, if, there is a, if there's a sacrifice that's an atonement for sins, and then there's another sacrifice that's specifically an atonement for unintentional sins, then the sacrifice that's more general, like what's it going to cover if it's not covering, like what other sin is there than intentional and unintentional? You know what I'm saying? Like no disrespect yeah. to Michael Heiser. No. I'm, I just, yeah. yeah. And I think the guilt one comes along, but I would say the guilt one helps us make sense of the debt language a little bit in the New Testament too. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, I think, I I think didn't this mean to is where we Sorry, disagree. This is where you'll see a disagreement because I think the burnt offering is covering sin as a whole. It's covering the 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 level by which it's infected the world and needs to be constantly covered. It's not an intentional something I've done. It's just kind of a, a an actual status of what exists outside of the temple. Whereas the sin offering is covering unintentional sins um, and uncleanness. It's not just covering sins. It's actually like, for instance, Mary had to make a sin offering uh, when she had her baby because she was unclean. She had to wait a certain amount of time and she wasn't sinful because she was unclean, right? She came to the temple. She offered a purification um, offering. And that's why that there's a level of purity, not just for our sin that taints our lives, but actually some of those, those things that get out of our body as well that just are not part of what produces life. And then the guilt offering, um, one of the things that Wenham says is that this one comes close to the intentional aspect because we do something, but there's this immediate aspect of guilt that fills our life. This is what he says. So again, we're kind of all looking at the context and, and trying to wrap our heads around these things. So the truth is, like, even as we discuss these things, um, there's a lot of room for trying to understand the ways in which these, these sacrifices and offerings operate. But the most important thing is that they're done in ways that bring us into relationship I with Christ. I think 16 will so. set us straight. Day of Atonement will help us clarify <laughs> all We'll get there eventually. Yeah. But I think what you said is so true. The important thing is to recognize that all of the sin problem is taken care of through these many sacrifices, which point forward to the work of Jesus in unique ways. And so that's the most important thing. All of your sin, whether it's sin as a contaminating agent or sins that you did because you wanted to or sins because you did because you did, that you did because you didn't want to, they're all covered in some form or fashion. Yes, I agree. I agree. And this, the sacrifices don't make it right. God makes it right. Right. And the heart the sacrifice he... brings us willingly and intentionally into his presence to receive it. So don't get confused. God's not a, we don't manipulate God with, with offerings and sacrifices. And we talked about this a little bit even last week, right? Like so many of the prophets were speaking to the people of Israel and saying, you've got the sacrifices, but your heart is wicked. Like you have ignored justice to the most marginalized people. They are in your midst and you're, and you're not taking care of them in the ways that you need to. And it's actually revealing that your sacrifice is not purifying anything. And so part of what, again, what the the sacrifices do is they begin to give us an entrance to God, but when they become, they don't match our hearts. Like when the people aren't in and of themselves holy, which is the whole point, is not just that the people would come and get to be in the holy presence of God, but that they themselves would be the holy people of God. When those two things are, there's a dissonance, then it's ruining part of what God is calling them to be. That's why Jeremiah 31 says, I'm going to make a new covenant and I'm going to write the law on your hearts. And it's going to change every part of who you are and who you become. And that's part of what we look forward to. 
And that's every part part of what these offerings are looking to. They're looking for Jesus as the one who's going to not, again, it's not that this was bad. This was an amazing moment of grace. I love that your, your point that you made there. I think it's a helpful clarification because when Jesus comes, he doesn't just say, well, that was bad. He says, I'm fulfilling what that was pointing to. And now I'm providing something better. I am providing something that's going to show you the cost of all of what that entailed but also the beauty of what it proceeds and, and moves into. And so uh, as we look toward next week, one of the things we're going to do is start to look at the priests and the ordination process and how uh, those people became, became the ones in which would usher the people of God um, forward and backward toward, toward everything uh, that we get to receive and be in the presence of God with. So any closing comments? I don't think so. Yeah, just that it's, it's um, I mean, it's all there. It really is. So there's some other nuances we could draw out but I think, man, you've said some wonderful things and we've been able to cover a decent bit of ground. And, and one, of the, one of the things I enjoy about Leviticus is it, it, there's very little in Leviticus that's only said once. And I think part of what you, part of the value there is, as you continue to think along with Leviticus, you continue to learn more about all the things that you're learning about. So I might say one thing. I might, that, that actually connected for me from something you said back there. So that whole burnt offering, apart from our little, you know, conversation about what exactly it covers, what we agree on is that it covers the whole problem of sin however you want to frame that out. And, um, and so it points forward to life with Jesus in two ways. Jesus offered his whole self for you. And you now are invited and called to offer your whole self to him. And I, I, what, was, what our conversation beforehand made me uh, connect is that reality to the daily aspect of it. So this was done every morning and every night. The one death of Jesus covers your sin every morning and every night. And this is symbolized by the burnt offering. And the life that you have to give from morning to night is all something that that belongs to God, that he rightly deserves for his glory and for your joy, because in his love, he's invited you back in. So I love meditating on these things. And I find that while I'm studying them, it's a little bit dry, because I'm trying to make my way through a lot of weird details. But later on, if I can get myself to think about them, then connections start to happen. So keep these thoughts before your mind in whatever way you can. And I think you'll see some fruit in terms of a greater understanding of who Jesus is for, you, for us, for you. One last thing is that, um, I know, we have resources up here if you guys missed anything, but also they, Michael um, and Ozark Christian College just released a, a study through Leviticus, actually. Um, and so if you're like, I want I want more of this um, and maybe some things that we didn't cover up here. That would be a great place to, to look and to, and to access. I'll actually, I'll plan on talking to somebody to get it at the same place that this QR code is. So I don't know if I'm allowed to do that, but you just go on YouTube um, and Google it's on YouTube. Yeah. It's called my next name level video. Ozark Christian college, or you can just do Michael DeFazio and, and you'll find it. Oh yeah. We have it on right now too. It's on there. It's on right now media. Yeah. So, and if you, if, if you're watching something and you're like, man, I think this needs correction, just let me know. And <laughs> no, I'm just yes, kidding. You should. <laughs> you totally should. But we, uh, we appreciate guys. I want to pray for you and then you guys can get out of here. Father God, we're so grateful that we could um, just sit, sit with you, Father. Again, Father, this is what it's about, God. Not just simply that we can talk about your presence, but right now, God, you are here. And so, Father, we pray that we would not lose sight of that. That even here, Father, you are speaking in your word. God, it, it's, it's doing things that we don't even see yet. And so, Father, we just pray that it would continue to just grow louder in our lives and drown out the competing voices. 
Father, we pray that as we look at the offerings and the things that were given, that we would refrain. We'd, at some level, we would say, we would stop saying, God, I don't, I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore because God, you're still inviting us to offer you our whole self. God, may we never lose sight of that. May we each day offer you our bodies as a living sacrifice. Father, we pray that both tonight, tomorrow, every moment would be for your glory and our joy as we enjoy one another in the fellowship of all that you have provided. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.